name's Casey, and this is Becoming Europe, a podcast where I explore the real-life impacts of European migrant and refugee policies through episodes involving interviews with specialists to episodes of my own research. Today's episode, one of my own research, I consider is an attempt at untangling the question of what is a refugee. I want this episode to kind of be put into parts. So part one being the reason why I thought that this podcast might be necessary or this specific episode might be necessary looking at a post between impact and the International Rescue Committee. The second part being the specific definitions of the terms that we will be using. We will return back to some current statistics to see what they're like in 2021. And then we will look at what becoming a quote-unquote refugee is like, aka getting the status, and we will look specifically at England and France, and we will look at the conditions that those refugees live in once they are given the refugee status, or while they are waiting to get that status. And then we will look at some narratives refugees have written about. And finally, I, as with most episodes that I do, I list a bunch of ways that one can help, where you can donate, other things that you can do. So... That's the structure, so let's get right into it. So in previous episodes, I've I've noticed this trend that the media kind of releases this sensationalized image of what a refugee is. You will see commercials with women crying, holding their kids, people jam-packed on a raft trying to cross the English Channel, all of these kinds of sensationalized imagery to get people to feel a certain kind of way about refugees. And I think that that all works. I think the media has done a wonderful job sensationalizing refugees and even dehumanizing them to an extent because at the end of the day, as we will discuss in this episode, these are all real people. The sensationalized imagery that the media can put out there to the public almost kind of creates this distance between us and them. We can look at that and think, oh, that's happening so far away. Those are living circumstances I would never understand. Those poor, poor people. But in reality, there are a lot of more complicating factors that happen, and there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that the media doesn't talk about very much, and a lot of statistics that we don't really address very often because we kind of prefer to stick with that sensationalized image because it's clean, it's straightforward, we get... We get an idea of what a refugee is immediately from those images. However, what I've always wanted to do with this podcast is kind of rehumanize these current events because refugees are people first. I think the media has done a large disservice, and I know that I am just one very small podcast, but I like to think that the more episodes that we have and the more conversations we have that are really humanizing these subjects and really talking about them in serious ways and accurate ways, no matter how ugly those conversations might be, the outcome will ultimately be better. I want to talk about the people. I want to talk about how many people are being affected. I want to talk about their stories, how it feels, what we can be doing better in a global sense. And I realized that I started this podcast and I've done a handful of episodes and I've never really addressed what is a refugee, what is a migrant, what is a displaced person, because the media kind of uses all of these very interchangeably. However, there are differences. And this idea kind of came about because I saw a collaboration between Impact and the International Rescue Committee. They posted some statistics from 2021 and they highlighted seven countries, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Ethiopia, and Venezuela. And I was looking through those statistics and I 
kind of realized that I created this podcast to talk about refugees, to talk about, to go about kind of trying to rehumanize this subject that has been dehumanized by the media, and I've never really explained what's going on. One of the other goals of this podcast was to make things tangible for an everyday listener, and when we use terminology, I've learned in grad school, we have to define it. We have to say exactly what we mean. So think of this episode I've called it unpacking the lingo, what is a refugee. Think of it as kind of the broadest cheat sheet to the current refugee situation that is facing us globally. Of course, there are new developments happening every day, and I will try to be as on top of them as I can be, but this is as of August 4th, 2022. This is the cheat sheet that I've come up with. So Impact and the International Rescue Committee, as I've mentioned, posted this um, talking about statistics and highlighting certain countries. So they state that in 2021, 89.3 million people were forcibly displaced around the world. And Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, pushed the number to over 100 million. And the number of displaced persons has more than doubled in the last 10 years. And so then, as I mentioned, they highlight certain countries. We have Ukraine. Six million people have fled with millions more internally displaced in Ukraine, according to this post made August 2nd, 2022. Afghanistan has one of the largest refugee populations in the world. They currently have 2.6 million people displaced around different countries. And in 2021, over 723,000 people were internally displaced. Syria has 14.6 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. Yemen has 80% of their population needing humanitarian aid, along with 3.6 million people internally displaced. Somalia and Ethiopia are facing a huge hunger crisis that is intensified by drought, ongoing internal conflict, desert locusts, and surging food prices due to the war in Ukraine. And Venezuela currently has more than 6 million people who have been driven from their homes due to political corruption, food and medicine shortages, and shortages of fuel, electricity, and clean water. And so not only does this post show a lot of very serious statistics from last year, but it also gives a lot of the reasons why people become refugees in the first place. I think that a lot of the media kind of just focuses on refugees as this kind of conglomerate of just people showing up on boats or crossing a border illegally when we really should be looking at the fact that they have very, very valid reasons. I mean, looking at what impact and the International Rescue Committee cited, war, huge hunger crisis, food and medicine shortages, shortages of fuel, shortages of clean water, and those are only some of the ones that people are facing when they are becoming refugees. And those decisions are never easy, and we will talk about that later in this episode, the fact that these people are already facing incredibly difficult living situations, and then also making that call to leave your country and to take a gamble to try to get to another one, and then have to face all the persecution in a different form that they get from those quote-unquote welcoming countries is a whole other beast. So those were just some statistics. Um, and some information about some of the countries that are currently facing a lot of difficulties in creating a lot of the world's refugee population. And so I want to move to definitions, because like I said, if I've learned anything in grad school, it's that you have to define every single thing you're talking about. And I've also found that in media and in articles, people kind of use a lot of the terminologies very interchangeably. So we have refugee, migrant, displaced person, and asylum seeker, and all of these definitions are coming to the Oxford Languages Dictionary. So a refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. 
Migrant, a person who moves from one place to another, especially in order to find work or better living conditions. Displaced person, a person who is forced to leave their home country because of war, persecution, or natural disaster. A refugee. Asylum seeker, a person who has left their home country as a political refugee and is seeking asylum in another. So as we can see, there is a lot of overlap. Displaced person and asylum seeker both use the word refugee in their own definitions, but I find that the media tends to really mix up refugee and migrant, and they definitely can overlap. I've come to realize that they're more a Venn diagram. There are the differences and there are the similarities, but you'll find that they refer to encampments as migrant encampments instead of refugee encampments. And that seems kind of like a nonsense, like maybe I'm kind of grasping at straws there. But according to the UN Refugee Agency, they have an entire article citing the differences between a migrant and a refugee. And those articles are plentiful if you are ever interested in looking at those differences. But the UN Refugee Agency cites that the difference comes down to choice. A migrant can choose to stay in their home country, but can also choose to live somewhere else in hopes of having better living conditions, whereas a refugee almost faces no choice but to leave their home country because of the dangerous living conditions that are currently happening. For me, though, I think that when it comes down to choice, it's a little tricky. I think, of course, refugees are put in a horrific circumstance where it's stay and risk whatever persecution may come or whatever dangers may come from living in your home country or take the risk of leaving and face whatever possible dangers happen along the journey or in the welcoming country that they are going to. But to me, a migrant faces those same things. I mean, in the definition, a migrant is someone who is moving from one place to another, especially in order to find work or better living conditions. Who's to say that those better living conditions aren't trying to escape a country in the throes of war or a country that just witnessed a huge natural disaster. And so I think that while the two terms are different, and I think that that idea of choice is definitely a necessary one to highlight, I think that it can also lead into kind of a sticky situation where people can argue about whether or not anyone had a choice of moving from country A to country B, when in reality, We don't know the full story all the time. Someone who is labeled as a migrant by the government could easily be a refugee, they just don't meet the qualifications for a refugee status, and vice versa. And we will talk about that complication later on in the podcast. But I just kind of wanted to outline these definitions to kind of untangle how the media uses them because they do use them interchangeably. And while those that does work, I think, for a good maybe 75% of the time, there are inherent differences that I think are important to note. One of those being the issue of that terminology of choice and whether or not we think that the difference between a refugee and a migrant comes down to choice. But as I said, there are many, many articles out there that talk about the difference between a refugee and a migrant. And I do think that those differences are very valid. I think where it gets into a tricky territory is when the governments have to label the people once they arrive in the country, whether they get a refugee status or a migrant status. But once again, we will talk about that later on in the episode. So I've already said some statistics, but all of those that IMPACT and the International Rescue Committee cited are all from 2021, and we are eight months into 2022, which is crazy. I wanted to give some kind of idea of what those statistics look like 
2022, now that we are over halfway through the year. So the UN Refugee Agency released some current statistics as of June 16th, 2022. So note, these numbers will, of course, have changed by now. They note that there are currently 27.1 million refugees and around half are under the age of 18. There are 53.2 million internally displaced people. There are 4.6 million asylum seekers. And this is a statistic that I do not see people talking about nearly as much as they should, but children account for 30% of the entire world's population, but they account for 41% of all forcibly displaced people. And finally, they note one in every 88 people on Earth has been forced to flee. So those are the current statistics as of June 16, 2022. I can only assume that those have gotten higher due to natural disasters, climate change, war, political corruption, hunger, hunger crises, etc. All those previously noted reasons uh, that one would flee a country. But those are generally the numbers that we're looking at in 2022. So now that we have talked about statistics and we've talked about definitions, I want to talk about kind of how refugees are received and how they get the status. So as mentioned, uh, we will be looking specifically at England and France, but to start with England, and if you would like to know more about the UK's reception of refugees, you can check out the episode that I did with Hira and Miriam from their organization, Our World 2, because we talk a lot about what those conditions are like. But to give, once again, that kind of cheat sheet, once you receive the refugee status in England, you stop getting a cash allowance, £40.65 for each person in your household. You must move house if you were given housing as an asylum seeker. So if the government gave you a place to stay while you were waiting for the refugee status, you must move. And you have to move within 28 days of receiving that refugee status. And they do note on their website, this is from citizensadvice.org.uk, they do note that if you have trouble, there are resources for you. If you have trouble getting a job, if you have trouble finding a house. But with 55,146 asylum applications in the UK by March of 2022, is this system really manageable? Is the question that I ask. If all those people need help, is the UK government really able to help all of them? Because not only are we dealing with traumatized people, we are dealing with language barriers, we are dealing with cultural barriers, we are dealing with a lot of barriers that I think institutions and governments don't necessarily account for. They think 28 days is enough time for you to find a new house. You don't account for if that person speaks the language of this country, if there is a cultural difference, if they need maybe more medical attention, if they need more mental help, if they need any kind of help that is not necessarily totally visible. They don't really account for that. So as I mentioned, with that many asylum applications, and those are just the applications, those aren't even the people who are given refugee status, and that is only by March of 2022, is that system really manageable? Is a system where if they have trouble finding a job, if they have trouble finding a house in those 28 days, is it really manageable for them to help out? So they have that base of a system, but besides refugees facing racism religious persecution, prejudice of all sorts by the citizens of those welcoming countries. In January 14th of 2022, the UK wanted to pass a bill that would increase the risk of discrimination and human rights violations. And additionally, it even breaches the country's obligations under international law. So that bill is called the Nationality and Borders Act. And the new kind of system that they want to provide is some reception centers and a new two-tier system of ranking refugees, along with an age assessment for young people. 
And that kind of difference in reception in the Nationality and Borders Act is explained by the refugeecouncil.org.uk, where they say, for example, this difference will look like refugees who travel to the UK through third countries via irregular routes like crossing the channel are going to be given temporary protection that will be reassessed after 30 months. And the two-tier system, they know, also gives some refugees more rights than others because you are either a tier one refugee or a tier two refugee. Additionally, with the age assessment of young people, which if you would like to hear more about young refugees and migrant youths, by all means, you can listen to the episode that I did with Chrisandra from Soul Food. Uh, we talk a lot about France's reception of young refugees and young migrants. But they note that the problem with that is, quote, the bill explicitly states that a decision maker should consider the credibility of a young person to be compromised if they refuse to assent to a, quote, scientific method, unquote. And my question with that is, are translators being used? Are they making any effort to explain what that, quote, unquote, scientific method is? Because in my own research, I couldn't find what that scientific method is. And proving an age is already hard, but you are also dealing with a traumatized youth. And in the episode that I did with Cassandra, we talk about that a 16-year-old fleeing a war-torn country is going to be very different from an English 16-year-old. So you can't just say, oh, they're not acting like a teenager. So they're not a teenager. And additionally, a lot of uh, refugee advocate groups are talking about how the protection of the child should come first. It should be more assume that they are a child, protect them as they are a child, and if you find out that they are actually above the age of 18, then you can address that later. Instead of saying, if they're not consenting to the quote-unquote scientific method to prove that they're young, that should be a mark against them. Because really, once again, we have to ask, are there translators being used? Are there people who that young person trusts after the journey that they just went through is there someone that they can speak to in a safe way someone who they feel safe around instead of people who are kind of looking for a reason to not allow them into the country which a lot of the refugee advocate groups kind of see the nationality and borders act as an attempt of dissuading um, the refugee population in the uk so that's the UK and England, and we will move to France now. So if you, if this is the first episode that you're listening to, I'm a graduate student. I study French studies. This whole podcast started because I was going to initially look at only France, but then wanted to look at kind of everywhere. Um, so France is where I know the most about. And so France kind of has a very similar system. Once you get a refugee status, you get health insurance, housing, a monthly allowance. And on paper, all of those seem great. It's the same thing with the UK. On paper, that's amazing. Like you are giving them health insurance. You're giving refugees access to housing, a monthly allowance until they find a job. But then you notice there's this big trend in countries where on paper, their refugee policies are great. They're, well... They're not even really great most of the time. They're a little bit below satisfactory, um, but a lot of people will take that as satisfactory today. You are given health insurance, housing, a monthly allowance. That's more than enough. But then you don't think about the, the persecution that those refugees face in that country for possibly the rest of their lives. So, for example, and this is from an article uh, from October 7th, 2021, they write that Five years prior to 2021, French authorities dismantled a migrant encampment, and so that's where we see that migrant encampment when really it would be refugee encampment. 
uh, in Calais, a port city in the north of France. So they destroyed this migrant encampment. You can find pictures online. They destroyed it, and we will talk more about what they did to destroy it. They basically re-displaced a whole group of people. However, many migrants and refugees still live there as of as of today, but also, of course, as of the article in 2021. As many as 2,000, including hundreds of unaccompanied children. So essentially what they were doing up there is there are policing operations as well as policies to restrict distributions of food and water to this population. The police will cut open tents to make them unusable. And most encampments there in Calais were subject to these routine eviction operations basically every 48 hours in 2020 and the first half of 2021. And so the police carried out this kind of periodic mass eviction where they would just show up, tell everyone to get out, and then destroy the tents and then leave. The article that I found that I will cite in my sources um, and my show notes interviews a Kurdish woman from Iraq Um, And she told Human Rights Watch in December of 2020, quote, When the police arrive, we have five minutes to get out of the tent before they destroy everything. It is not possible for five people, including young children, to get dressed in five minutes in a tent, unquote. So those kind of periodic evictions where you have five minutes to leave the tent happened every 48 hours in 2020 and the first half of 2021. The Human Rights Observers, or the HRO, recorded at least 90 mass evictions of migrant encampments in northern France in 2020 and the first seven months of 2021. And they would even refer to this encampment as the jungle. The real kicker is that there literally was no attempt to even make an excuse, even try to make an excuse for this behavior. So... It's written in the article from the Human Rights Watch that, as the French Defender of Rights has concluded, the evictions are carried out with the primary purpose of forcing people to move elsewhere and do not serve to resolve people's migration or housing status. So they're not saying, oh, you're living in a tent. You've been living in a tent for, like, who knows how long. Maybe we should, you know, talk to someone to check on your refugee status to try to help you find a home. Instead, they give them five minutes and then destroy the one attempt at building a home that they had so no one is doing this for the effort of helping these people they are just doing it and so unfortunately that's one of those examples of the refugee policy being okay on paper and then in practice falling apart or in practice the refugees facing huge racial prejudice religious prejudice xenophobia all because they were trying to flee unlivable conditions in their home country, only to find unlivable conditions in the welcoming countries. The other real kicker is that all these countries boast about how they're there for migrants, they're there for refugees, they want to help these people. The refugees in Ukraine, we want to help them. The refugees in Afghanistan, that's sad. The refugees in Africa, yeah, sure, we'll help them, we'll let some of them off the boat. But then they have to live in these conditions where no one helps them. And sure, if they get help, it's maybe like one in a hundred or one in a thousand. Like, you hear more stories of refugees facing more persecution in their welcoming countries than you hear about the government actually being like a useful tool for them. Which leads us to the part about narratives. And so I... As I mentioned, I really wanted this to be 
focused on the people. I want to rehumanize it. Yes, I listed a bunch of statistics in this episode, but I think that it's good because no one even talks about the numbers alongside the people. It's basically talk about numbers or talk about people. And I think it's important to talk about both. And so there is a website that I adore. It's called ourworld2.org.uk. I did interview Hira and Miriam, the founders of Our World 2, and they put in such an effort to share narratives of migrants and refugees. And they do a phenomenal job in rehumanizing these issues. And so I wanted to share one of the stories that they had on their website. And the title of the article is Empathy Needs to Exist. Refugees aren't a problem to be solved or a phenomenon. And I will leave the link to their website in the show notes so you can go follow them on Instagram and read all these stories. And so the narrator is born in Iraq and then moved to Libya with their family when they were two because of political challenges in Iraq. And so the entire narrative is this person outlining why they became a refugee and what the reception in the UK was like. They write, quote, the asylum process was terrifying, traumatic, and humiliating. There was no dignity in the process. The very act of claiming asylum is humiliating. There are interrogations and people are condescending. No one tells you about the process or what happens next, unquote. And so they continue to write that they ended up in Libya sleeping at the airport for four nights and were only able to board a flight because their dad had taught the daughter of one of the airport officials. They also note that the plane was virtually empty, almost as if they were just preventing people from leaving. In the beginning of this episode, I talked about how the difference between a migrant and a refugee is kind of like a Venn diagram. There are similarities and there are differences, but ultimately what I think the problem arises from is the status given by the government. Well, this is the example that I was thinking of with that. They made it to the UK with their mom, and the rest of their family. And the UN granted their dad protection, but the home office in the UK didn't think he met the criteria. And so it became this whole thing of trying to prove to the home office in the UK that their dad did meet the the status of a refugee. The UN granted it. He meets it for all these reasons. They ended up needing legal aid to kind of combat the home office in the UK because they just simply didn't believe that he met the criteria. And so it's all whether or not you get access to those limited resources as a refugee in the welcoming country is all contingent on the office that you see. And so the office that granted the narrator protection refused her father, even though arguably they would be facing the same circumstances. The narrator continues to talk about their experience in school, their experience being the only Muslim student in a Catholic school. And they write, quote, I've realized we shouldn't expect low attainment from asylum-seeking children. I have a lot of friends from Syria and Turkey, and people actively told them they wouldn't get anywhere. Students internalize these comments and are conditioned to think that they are less than native students. People underestimate how quickly kids learn, unquote. And I saw this in my own teaching experience in France. I taught at a primary school in the south of France, and some of the kids would be children of refugees, children of immigrants, and the other kids would make fun of them for not being able to speak French. And when they get scolded by me, they say, well, he doesn't understand. And you'll find teachers not say anything either. And so these kids internalize that they are growing up in a country, in a system that does not value them as they do the native students. And I think that this entire article, I didn't want to just give you a play-by-play of it because I would much rather you read this person's words than have me dictate it to you. But 
It does a phenomenal job of showing that the dangers and challenges of being a refugee don't end just because their journey to the welcoming country is quote-unquote over. Additionally, I'm also leaving more articles where you can find more refugee stories because I think it's important to read, and this podcast is an attempt at a cheat sheet to kind of give a, a general idea of what the current refugee situation is globally in 2022, so I don't want to go through all these people's stories. I would much rather you read their words. And so it's all a tricky situation. Sometimes on paper, it's great. In practice, it's rarely good. And at the end of the day, these are all people. They're not only statistics. They're not fodder for political agenda. These people never even really consent to being any of that. And yet that's how the media uses it. That's how people use it. And I hope that this podcast in some way showed you what the current situation is and also how it feels and what those conditions are like when they even are able to reach their welcoming country. And additionally, how you can help. So according to the collaboration between IMPACT and the International Rescue Committee, uh, if you are in the U.S., you can tell President Biden to set up a refugee resettlement goal of 125000 and you can go to rescue.org act, and I will leave that in the show notes as well. You can also donate to organizations like International Rescue Committee, Organization for Refugee, Asylum, and Migration. All of those will also be in the show notes in the description. Because there are things you can do. If you can't donate, you can volunteer. You can volunteer to house a refugee. You can spread the word. You can make sure that that stigma that the media and politicians create doesn't exist anymore. You can make an extra effort to help a refugee in your neighborhood, in your city. You can actually put the welcome in welcoming country because I don't really know why anyone calls them welcoming countries when I feel like nine times out of ten it's like the least welcoming environment. But there are things that you can do that are tangible and I feel like I shared a lot of very, very sad statistics and I've shared sad stories and I've shared sad conditions, but I don't want people to be hopeless. I think that there is a lot that we can do as an individual and I think that there's a lot we can do to push governments to actually help these people and to and to see them as people and value them as human beings because with the number of displaced persons being more than doubled in the last 10 years, clearly there is an issue at hand. And I think that the desensitization and the sensationalization of the refugee population by the media and by politicians is a huge contributing factor to why these conditions are so bad and why all these stories are so hard. And there are things we can do. Donate to the right organizations. We can help people on the ground. We can volunteer. We can spread the word. We can actively choose to not let the media be the only thing that dictates what a refugee is and dictates their stories. We can destigmatize the stigma that politicians and the media has created. And so I hope that this podcast was a cheat sheet for you. If this is your first episode, it's not like my usual ones. Usually I target specific events, but I realize that I've made a handful of episodes, like I've said, and I've never really divulged like what a refugee is, what the current situation, what the current numbers are, what the conditions are like. So I wanted to kind of break all of that down so that we can all be a little bit more educated and we can all find ways to be a bit more educated. So I'm learning every day. The numbers are constantly changing. Circumstances are constantly changing. And the important thing is to not 
stop learning. It's ugly, it's sad, but these are important stories and without sharing these stories, without breaking the stigma, these conditions will continue to be bad and the stories will continue to be sad. And we, essentially, I just want people to know what the situation is in reality and that there are things that we can do to help. So I've left all the donation links in the description of this and in the show notes, and I will post them on Instagram. You can follow me at Becoming Europe Pod on Instagram um, because I'm going to share the accounts that I follow that are very educational, the places that you can donate, the things that you can do. Because I think that, like I mentioned, as much as this is a big and difficult and upsetting problem, there are things that we can do and there are things that we all should be doing and there are things that governments and politicians should be doing that they're not. And there are things we can do on the ground to push them. And I encourage you to push them because they need to be pushed. And so I hope that this was educational for you. I hope that you learned something. I hope that you go away understanding that while these problems are big, there are things we can do and staying informed is one of them. So thank you for learning with me and thanks for listening.